the convention collective Sandbox. At Emerald City Comic Con 2019. Um, the reason I wanted to talk to you primarily is because mm-hmm. I saw that you went to Carnegie Mellon, and mm-hmm. I too spent some time at Carnegie Mellon. Nice. <laughs> so, when was that? Uh, in the summer of 2011, mm-hmm. I was there for um, their computational neuroscience nice. research program. So yeah, I saw <laughs> the track where they do the robot races oh, every year. <laughs> so yeah, I saw I, that you have a, a friend who worked at the Center for Neurobasis of Cognition. Oh, nice. CMU yep. Pit Project. Yep. Yeah, we. I think our program was kind of a joint effort between the two because I was working in one of the pit labs. They, they had T-shirts at the time. Their unofficial motto was "Center for Neural Basis of Cognition" because neurons probably have something to do with cognition. <laughs> probably. I mean, it seems to be the general idea. Who knows? Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in what your background in computer science and artificial intelligence brings to your writing experience and your character development and all, all that kind of stuff? It's, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know, <laughs> um, is the first answer. I, I mean, computer science definitely gives you a certain method of problem solving. It definitely approaches the way I write. Like, I think of, I find myself thinking of it in those terms. I think right. in terms of a solution space and of constraints and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure if that's just different language for the same thing any writer would do, or yeah. if it's if it, the technique has approached it. Um, I certainly think of, you know, working in AI, you you think a lot about sort of incentives and fitness functions and things like that, and you know that's definitely a way to look at characters and sort of human nature that certainly informs what I do. Um, but I think most of it, the most obvious way is in process, that I have a kind of sort of outline process that is not dissimilar from how you would write a spec for a computer program. Because my, you know, I worked in AI, but my, my sort of basis is in just software development. Um, the AI thing was a sort of serendipitous that is the project I ended up on when I went to work for the university after, after I uh, went graduated. I went to stay in Pittsburgh, so I applied and uh, ended up working for Scott Fallman. If you know who that is, he's a... Sounds familiar. Uh, he's one of the old school computer science guys. He may not be there anymore. Um, but uh, he had this project with six or seven professors and a bunch of grad students on it. And he's like, I need a staff person who will do what I tell them to do because the professors will not. Um, yeah. So... Uh, so that was fun, but I, I did end up doing a lot of the boring work on that project because it was like, none of the, they, they want to work on the cool AI stuff. Nobody wants to design the UI or like right, right. how to save the data or whatever. And so I did a lot of that. It, it never worked though. It was a terrible. Like I used to refer to refer to my job as a professional waste of taxpayer dollars because basically we were trying to make something that like ultimately is kind of like what um, Apple's Siri ended up being. Okay. But this was in like. 2004, and the mm-hmm. tech was not there, so yeah. we never got particularly close to being able right. to do that. Um, but it was fun. I mean, I, you know, I imagine you know, plenty of a bunch of grad students got their PhDs out of it, which I yeah. guess is you know what we're there for. I would love to see the number of PhDs that were given for failed projects. No, oh, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, 
we got some fun games like how many world famous computer science professors does it take to make the overhead projector work? <laughs> yep, um, yep. We eventually decided that adding more professors does not make it more likely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense. We had some some world class petty personality conflicts. Mm. I feel like you get that almost everywhere in computer science. Well, it's academia in general, I think, from what I hear from people in other academia. Yeah. I had someone stomp angrily out of a meeting because their name was on page two of a slide deck instead of page one. Wow. That was was exciting. It was a good time. People are dramatic everywhere. But yeah, so I was there Mm -hmm. until about 2007. And then the government finally, DARPA finally canceled our project. Mm -hmm. That was the other thing. Since we were working for DARPA, I got to see a bunch of other projects that were really cool. Um, although I didn't have security clearance, so I couldn't see like the coolest part right, of like, right. a lot of their like advanced projects. So, can you tell me a little bit more about how like that the process, the procedures that you use when you're writing that you feel like are informed by computer science? So, it's funny because so I was writing before I I got my degree, and I feel like mm-hmm. it's become more computer sciencey over time. I used to be much more of a free writer or a pantser or whatever they call it, and then. I got in more into outlining because I had to once I sold the book. Like, we sold the first book, and they're like, the publisher wants outlines for the rest of the series. And I was like, ah, I hate doing outlines. So, but I did them, and then the next book was so much easier. I'm yeah. like, oh, this is way better. And so I kind of adopted this approach that's more like, like, it feels a little bit like gathering requirements for software. Um, so, like, so I go in and I'm like, okay, you know, here's the sort of core idea of the book. And so what does that imply, right? Like what are my like fixed points, my my irrevocable goals? Yes. And I get that and I'm like, all right, and so what you know you can almost think of it in terms of like if you want to break it down that way, then your like different scenes are like functions. So you're like, okay, I need sure. at some point characters X and Y have to do this together. So that means to get to that point, we need character X to be here and character Y to be there. You only have so many arguments you right. can give a chapter, exactly. and at the end you have to reach some kind of return. Exactly, it has to have the right output <laughs> yeah. to feed into the next thing. And so it, it feels like that's kind of the way that informs the design. And I ended up writing up these really detailed outlines. You know, my uh, outline for my last book was like 17,000 words oh which gosh. is like a tenth of the length of the book itself yeah. um, but it makes it so much easier just because like you get to the outline and you need to change something and you can change something without uh, rewriting tens of thousands of words right as long and, as you make it modular <laughs> right and so but it means that you also just feel more free creatively right because like yeah. After a certain point, when you're if you're just writing it out without an outline, then you're like, oh god, I need to go back and change this and it would make the book better, but it'd be so hard or, and I miss my deadlines, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And it reminds me very much of writing a spec, right? I think I do. You know who Joel on software is? I don't think it's Joel Spalski. He used to write be, write a popular software blog, but okay. it's probably before your time. Yeah. Um, I'm old now. It's terrible. Um, but. Uh, he said, like, the reason you write a spec is because, you know, if you want to change your program from, you know, object-oriented to, you know, something else, I don't know what he was talking about specifically, um, like, in the spec, I can change three lines of text, and then once you've actually written the program, then it's like a thousand hours of code, yeah. and uh, this is why you design in the spec and not on the fly. And so it has the same feel to it. 
That's super interesting. Um, have you ever encountered a scenario where that approach seemed like it didn't work? Yet. Not yet. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I don't know. There's always the next book. Yeah. Also, I think a lot of my... I mean, I write in fantasy, but I feel like a lot of my magic systems have some computer aspects to them. If you read Ship of Smoke and Steel, the, the like, ancient magic has this, like, computer feel to it. Right. Um, it's just kind of the way I approach it. And there are a lot of, like caveats and limits to what people are able yeah. to actually do and what rules they have to exist inside of. Yeah, I often think of think of magic as like, and this is not unique because it's been explored in many ways, but like you can think of it as sort of programming the universe, um, which is, you know, I think they talked about that in Marvel's Doctor Strange, but and in many other things, going back to the Incomplete Enchanter, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> way of doing it. So one of the things that I that came to mind while I was just reading a little bit more about Ship of Smoke and Steel, um, I'm curious if there are any other stories. You can talk a little bit more about just storytelling in general here, but uh, any other like pirate stories or things like you know myths about Davy Jones and the Flying Dutchman that kind of informed that one, just because of the ghost ship, everything with that kind of made me think of Davy Jones. Yeah, the Flying Dutchman is 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 close. I mean, I, I feel bad when people talk about pirates because, like, you have a very solid set of expectations when you think about pirates because you think about cannons, you think about, you know, guys with eye patches and yar and all that stuff, and none of that is in this book. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very different because it's, like, it's a magical world. They don't have cannons. Um, the ghost ship looks more like an oil tanker. Um, but it does have that Davy Jones locker feel. Like, the, the idea of this ship that that's different from everything else mm-hmm. this, this legend because it's bigger faster um, you know it has it has that feel to it and it also you know it goes around and it, it kind of collects people from each port that it touches um, and that's the idea of, of a ship that collects sort of lost souls or the damned is a, is a theme in some pirate stuff. And people actually want to command this ship? It sounds terrifying. Well, the, I mean, the, the premise is that, that our heroine, normally the, the whenever it calls it a city, they use it to sort of get rid of their undesirables, right? But because the ship is bigger and faster and tougher than anything afloat, um, one of the, the spy master of our heroine's empire has the bright idea that he's going to send her on board with her sister as a hostage and say, I want you to take this for me and bring it back so we can use it in the Navy and win wars. And if you don't, we're going to kill your family. Hmm. Um, and so she gets on the ship with not just the need to survive, but also this sort of other other impetus. And she finds out that they have this kind of Lord of the Flies society on board. Um, <laughs> Uh, because, you know, obviously you put a bunch of people on a horrible ghost ship full of monsters. Doesn't um, seem like they don't the always get along. type of ship that would be open to mutiny. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's, it's a problem. Fortunately, she's she's good at fighting things, and she makes some important friends. That's always helpful. Um, but, uh, but it's harder than it looks, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a fun premise. It's interesting. I came up with this almost 15 years ago. Because um, it was part of a bigger fantasy project that okay. I came up with. I had I'd done a couple of books that were from a small press, 
and I was like, okay, I'm going to do a big fantasy project. I think I had been reading like Game of Thrones and Steven Erickson's Malls on Book of the Pole, and, and I was kind of high on that. And I was like, I'm going to do this like giant thing. And it was, you know, one of these with this huge world bible and a timeline that begins with like year zero. The world uh-huh. was created by the elder gods. Uh-huh. Um, and it just didn't work. It collapsed under its own weight. I was not a good enough writer to do it, and then there's a bunch of stuff. And I also was just throwing in everything, random thing I could think of. Um, it had vampires in it, and Napoleonic warfare, and all this other <laughs> crap that I was interested in. But, um, but this idea was part of it, um, and it's a good argument for, like, always save everything, because uh, when I was looking for books to pitch as a YA, I went back for my list, and I'm like, that was really good, and I think it would make a good YA story. Um, and so I pitched it, and that, that's how it, where it came from. Yeah, that's kind of a, a good caveat into my next question, <coughs> which is just why, if there was a specific... What is happening? It seems to be doing some kind of transcript. Oh, it's 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 going back. Oh. It picked it all up. It's just really, really laggy. Interesting. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, is this, so... Is this one of those mechanical Turk things? There's actually just some dude desperately oh typing. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? <laughs> some someone, poor guy. Someone's and... listening to us. They may not even speak English, so yeah. they're just typing it out phonetically. Oh, no. Let's hope not. <laughs> um, no, my next question. Um, I read a lot of YA, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of debate, whatever you want to call it, in that community, just about the sheer number of YA readers who don't belong to that age group necessarily, you know, and and how the genre itself has changed over the past decade. It's wild. And so I was just curious if there was a specific, like what specific reasons made you feel more comfortable writing for that age group or what what specific elements of the story seem to fit in a YA world better than adult fantasy or middle grade or something else? Um, there's a bunch of different things. I mean, first of all, like YA has just become really awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so all-encompassing. You know, there are really no limits anymore. I, I like to joke. Ugh. I tell this joke a lot, but when I was a kid, um, all we had for kids books was like hack writers doing like the Hardy Boys and then Newbery award winning books about dead dogs (laughs) right and uh, now YA so like I stayed away from YA for a long time because of that and then like my friends are like it's really awesome and I started reading and I'm like wow this is amazing there's really just Um, something for everybody and so like um you know, I read books like I probably uh, the most proximate one is probably Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows, which I read and I'm just like blew me away. It's amazing. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of other great stuff. I did a if you Google my name and YA books, I did a list of like the YA for Tor.com. Um, I can't rattle it off right now, but there were a bunch of good books on it. Um, anyway, so I wanted to get involved in that. It seemed like a cool thing to do. Um, and then when I was looking over this story, um, it had some elements that felt like they belonged in that genre. And it's really hard to say why, because like honestly, nobody can define YA. If you ask people like what you know, what book is YA and what isn't, they'll get like seventeen different answers. But it had some stuff that was had some common elements with other things in the genre. Um, you know, it 
it obviously has a teenage protagonist. Right. Um, I, and for me, I think that's really the main, the only major element that's required to call it YA. It's true, but the problem is that's not enough, because there are definitely books yeah. with teenage protagonists that are not YA. Right. Like, Name of the Wind is not YA, yes. is the famous example, right? Even though it has a teenage protagonist that's technically a sort of coming-of-age story, yeah. but it, for, you, you can tell, as a YA reader, it doesn't fit. In the, the first genre. book can almost do it, but definitely not everything that happens with Florian. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know, man. There's there's some sex in this book. Yeah. It's funny because I wrote the book and I was like, I don't know what is and doesn't belong in YA, so I'm going to rely on my editor, who's yeah. like a super expert. I mean, because yeah. I got I got some of my friends to give me a YA reading list, and I went through a whole bunch of YA books, but I'm still like, I'm not the expert in this field, so I'll rely on my editor. And there was some stuff I didn't think she'd let me get away with, but mm-hmm. she 100% did. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is broader than even I thought. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so there was that. I mean... It's sort of a coming-of-age story, kind of, sort of, not really. (laughs) Um, uh, It's about a character who discovers new aspects to her sexuality, which is like a a thing that uh, you see in YA. It has some stuff in common with YA dystopias without, like, being quite dead center in that vein. Lord of the Flies, Hunger Games. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I mean, there was some stuff I wanted to do there, like... I really didn't want to do one of these dystopias that's kind of an artificial creation by some, like, all-powerful evil entity or, or you right. know, whatever. That this is just, like, people get on this ship and they have kind of a crappy society, but that's just because you get a bunch of people with magical powers that can fight and you put them on the ship and some of them are just going to take what they want. Kind of an epiphenomenon of right. the system exactly. you've created. Remind, it just has to... I was kind of inspired. Um, kind if you read Aaron Bowes' The Scorpion Rules, okay. they do a really good... She does a really good job with that. Of mm. like, you know, they, There they have this AI that puts these constraints on them, but then the people sort of create their own you know, relationships inside that. Yeah. Um, that's another great YA that I was inspired by. I love that. Would you ever... Are you still drawn to the idea of doing adult fiction at some point? Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. I am doing... I have a... I'm working right now on an adult book. It'll be out next year. Awesome. Because um, for the past four years, I've been writing the Shadow Campaigns alternating mm-hmm. with Forbidden Library, which is a middle grade mm-hmm. series. And I really like that setup. And so my plan is to continue alternating between adult and uh, YA. I guess it's technically children's, although it feels weird to call yeah, YA children's lit because like, that kind of means a different thing. Some publishers but. do call it children's, and then sometimes children's means the big yeah. 10 by 10 picture books, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's less true with, with these YAs because they're longer, but like, it was always nice mm-hmm. to the library because the Shadow Campaigns books are like enormously long, they're like 200,000 words, and so then I go to do the middle grade and it's like 80,000 words, I'm like, oh, I'm done. That was easy. Do you find that it's kind of like... Uh, the way it's kind of between. Yeah. Uh, do, do you find that working on middle grade between books, is that something you try to do intentionally, like on a schedule, so that it breaks it up for you mentally, yeah. that you have a quicker project? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of daunting to finish something the size of one of the Shadow Campaign's books and then immediately dive into the next one. <laughs> so it's nice to be able to do something else. And it's not that... Like, I don't believe in, like, writing down to people. Like, I would never say that, like, it's easier to write Middle Grade, but it's definitely different. Um, It's simpler structurally. Um, Like, 
you know, this is, again, less true. The YA is somewhere in between, but the middle grade books, like, there's one point of view, there's no, like, chronological messing around, it's just a sort of straightforward, you know, adventure story. I don't have to keep track of, like, different viewpoint characters and, like, how far they're marching and where they're going to, whether they're going to end up at the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, there's this girl, and she goes on an adventure, and she gets to different places and, and talks to people, and, like, it's refreshing to do that kind of, like, a simpler structure to a story. Yeah, I I really enjoy when I'm reading to break up my heavier reads with middle grade stories for the same similar reasons. But I still love that middle grade's able to tackle really big yeah. ideas in a really compact and succinct way. They can be so meaningful to people no matter what no, age are. So I loved I loved writing the Forbidden Library and mm-hmm. um, I love writing Shipless Milk and Feel. They're they're both really interesting they have really sort of thematic elements that are really important to me and I'm really glad to have been able to get to them. Um, Do you think that it it seems to me and I could just be could just be because I haven't been super involved in the writing world for more than a couple of years here but it seems like there are more and more authors who are crossing those the the age lines and writing for, for every age group. I mean we have there's Victoria Schwab who does it. You do it. Uh, uh, Lee Bardugo's doing it. You know, and yeah, I mean, Yoon Ha Lee has a middle grade book coming out, and his his um, adult books are definitely not middle grade. They're right. And super complex. It seem it just seems like maybe 20, 30 years ago that wasn't as common that you kind of stuck yeah. to your genre and you only wrote sci-fi fantasy for adults and you never went anywhere else. Do you do you have any sense of why that could be changing? I mean, you know, in some ways your guess is as good as mine yeah. because, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I I can I have some ideas, but nobody really understands the market. But right. part of it, so there's a, a bunch of different parts. Part of it is author branding has become more important. Um, that more and more the author brand is separate from their like their series or their publisher because we have social media, we have websites, you yep. know, authors are expected to do more and more of their own marketing and yep. so they, they end up um, and so it's a little easier to sort of take your followers also because there's more crossover readers. Yep. Like I feel like when I was a kid the number of adults who were reading YA or middle grade was essentially nil. Yeah. Um, and that is no longer true now. So yeah. like if I publish a YA there will be plenty of my adult, adult readers who will yeah. read it. Um a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, the kids' books have just gotten better. I mean, there were definitely some... I don't want to be too glib, because there were definitely some good kids' books when yeah. I was a kid. Like, you know, Tamara Pierce was already writing the Alana books, and there were many good ones. But often they were not even classed in the right category. Right, the, like, the whole Tamara idea Pierce of was YA an adult didn't at, at, really exist. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and it's Harry Potter that blew all that away, because it was like, oh, kids will read these long adventure books. They will... And it just... The whole market exploded. Yeah. Partly there's more money in it now. Um, used to be that was kind of a niche market. Now it's a big, big deal, big money Which market. Which is just amazing. Well, and it's it's great. Print I'm, media is succeeding. Yeah, and in some ways, I love hearing it because like it means that kids are buying these books, right? You know, the fact that kids are buying books has got to be good, no matter what else, other effects it has. Um, so I think it's that you know that why it got better, and then also the the things you could do got a little wider. There's yes. a little less of the like, oh, think of the children. You can't even mention yeah. that sex exists or that yeah. you know people might be in danger. Um, you know, 
so that so some obviously, people still carry that mentality. They do, and you, you see them occasionally. But yeah, yeah. importantly, the publishers don't, right. and they're buying books that don't. And I feel like there's a good range, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's YA that's sort of aimed at the younger end of the oh, market yeah. that's like a little a little less on that, and then there's stuff like my stuff, which I would definitely say is for like 16 and 17 year olds, and not like 14 year olds, right. depending on the person. I mean, I would have read it when I was 14, but I was yeah. a weird kid. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, th- that makes it obviously more attractive for adult authors who don't feel like, oh, I can't talk about anything interesting because it's YA. Like yeah. that's if that was ever true, it's certainly not true now. Yeah. And so obviously it makes it more attractive. Do you feel like you have a? Do you feel like your brain works differently in a way? Like going back to artificial intelligence a little bit and how? Oh, you mean from other people? No. <laughs> or from no. in, in YA? It just just when you're writing, when you're thinking about adult fiction or YA, even if when you're reading. Like I know for me, I I look at those at middle grade in a different way than I look at YA when I'm thinking about hmm. what elements I really like or dislike for a review. Do you feel like there are certain types of scenes or characters that are easier or harder to write in different genres? I mean, that's tough. Yeah. I don't feel like I write (laughs) that differently. Okay. Um, When I... I don't know that I can even read that differently, but I try to keep in mind when I'm reading that I am not the target audience. Right, yeah. Um, I think... Oh, we're not we're actually not in line. In, oh, maybe we maybe we are accidentally no. in a line. Well, no, you guys have like half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you know, because there are some things, I feel like there's there's a certain jadedness that you get after having read fiction for a long time that. Um, you know, you're like, oh, I've seen this before, I've seen this before. Um, and I feel like one of the great things about why readers that are younger is that they often don't have that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that makes people look down on them because they're like, oh, they just like trophy nonsense or whatever. But like, I actually think it's great because it's like, oh, you just haven't been like burned out by, mm-hmm. you know, seeing everything. Everything is great, you know. The first time. The first time. Yeah. It's like everybody has that book that you look back and maybe it's not even that great of a book looking back on it but like you know the kind of like tropey common stuff is 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 that way for a reason and because it's because it's awesome and so like you you know the first time you encounter that you're waiting for the next panel uh, you I will be soon. I'm glad we're not recording <laughs> for broadcast because there'd be a lot of interruptions. It's fine. We can um, always cut it out. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So like you know, for me it was like the old Dragonlance books, mm-hmm. and I was like, if I were to go back to those now, I don't know if they would love it. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the twenty series does, but like, but it doesn't matter because yeah. when I read those, I was fourteen and I. You'll still kind of have that link back when you read it and be like, I remember how this felt to read it when I was a kid, you know, and I, I, I definitely have that with books that I loved from years ago when I reread them. I'm like, I remember how excited I was about this part, even if I don't have the same response in the moment. Sometimes, sometimes it's better not to go back. Like, oh, yeah. We, yeah. My fiance and I rewatched um, Number 5, uh-huh. um, <laughs> which I had watched as a, as a teen in college. Um, and I remembered really liking 
but she had never seen it, and so we got the DVDs and we watched it, and it's not good. <laughs> I'm sorry to any Babylon 5 fans, but it's it's just not. Um, oh, no. It, had, it has some good things in it, but but it's just, you know, it's bad acting. But I remember loving it at the time because we were so desperate for good sci-fi on television, and because there was like that and TNG and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that was it. Um, and... Um, you know, Babylon 5 did these things like these myth arcs that like lasted for season to season. We were just blown away. I'm like, oh my god, who could do that? And now that shit is on every every TV show because TV shows, well, certainly sci-fi TV shows, have gotten way better. Yeah. But um, so don't always go back and re-examine your heroes because sometimes it doesn't end well. I'm sorry. I hope legions of Babylon 5 fans won't add you on Twitter. I'll let you know. It's fine. I'll fight them if I need to. Yeah, if they attack you, if they come after me to get to you, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, so one of the other questions I had written down about, uh, what's your name? I'm sorry. <laughs> your main character. Isaka. yes. Um, I was curious if you were to create a D&D character sheet for her, what would be some of her primary character traits? What weapons would she have? What stuff would she shove in her bag of holding? Mm. <laughs> um, well, she has magical weapons and armor, uh-huh. um, which helps a lot. So she doesn't need much in the way of like explicit adventuring gear. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she She's definitely stronger on the physical side and maybe lower on charisma. I mean, you know, arguably the most interesting thing would be, like, I feel like the book is essentially about her change of alignment um, from... I don't know where she'd start. Maybe like chaotic neutral, um, towards something more like chaotic good. Um, that it's it's it, she goes from a place of like only caring about her younger sister and being able, willing to kill or hurt or cheat or steal whoever's in that way to having something more of a moral compass, um, and that's that's the sort of part of her story that's most interesting to me and so like dd wise this is the quest you go on when you need to like become a hero and change your alignment um she uh it's funny because she's she's the kind of personality that normally would like carry a bunch of like weapons around except that she doesn't really need them yeah. <laughs> so like if she didn't have her magical powers she would definitely be the person who's like bristling with every weapon you could possibly get your hands on and like all these throwing knives and stuff <laughs> pulling them out of every every spare space right yeah now. um but uh but yeah, she's kind of like a hard drinking, hard partying type too. I don't know if that shows up in your statistics. <laughs> but she would be the the kind of character who like gets the party into trouble by getting into a bar fight when she's not supposed to. Yeah, yeah, um, I've played with a few of those in my time. It's always fun. Um, so maybe not the most fun character to have in your party, or maybe so. It depends on your on your campaign. Yeah, yeah. She definitely has the, and I've definitely had this literally happen in a D&D game, where, you know, one party's, one member of the party's like, okay, well, we're going to have to figure out how to negotiate with this guy, because obviously doesn't the other guy's like, I shoot him in the face with my fireball. 
It's like it's definitely the latter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I remember in particular sure. there was a gnome that was like being intransigent and found himself kicked out of a six-story window. <laughs> and the, the party paladin was like, what are you doing? And he's like, that guy pissed me off. <laughs> so, um, since we're at Emerald City Comic Con... We are. Do you want to talk a little bit more about... Uh, what you're excited for here? I know you. I hope I hope you get some free time to do well, other things besides authory things. I do. Well, it's a little weird. This is a weird con for me because I live here. Um, right. So I live in Redmond, um, and so it's always strange having cons in my hometown mm-hmm. because, like, I'm so used to going to these cons and it kind of putting everything else on hold for a while. But I'm just gonna like go back home and sleep in my own bed and but then on the flip side like I get up tomorrow and I have to do chores and stuff yeah. like it's like I'm not really on vacation in the way that I am when I go to like Phoenix Comic Con mm-hmm. um, uh, but it's it also has this fun aspect of like like I have a lot of friends who come into town and it's like you know I can host welcome you know I was just hanging out with my friend Mike Cole and there's a bunch of other people so I get to meet up with a bunch of other authors that I normally only talk to on Twitter that's right. always a ton of fun yeah. and so that's in many ways that's the best part of these cons for me like aside from interacting with fans like um, meeting up with the other authors and there's just people that I, I see online but not in real life there's a kind of community who drifts around the cons it's a good circuit um you know, I've been here many years, um, and it's it's gotten bigger. It's it's changed over the years, um, but it's still definitely would be one of my favorite cons, even if I didn't live here in Seattle. Um, excuse me. It's really well run, and I always feel like I don't know. I've been to many cons that are like horrible disasters of organization, and this never feels that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, so far, no, so far it's been really nice. And this is my first year coming, uh, but yeah, it's been even with the security changes and everything. So far, it's been great. If for a local, here's a tip for locals: mm-hmm. is um, don't park near the convention center. <laughs> park where it's free, and then Uber to the convention center. Yeah. Because you'll pay five dollars for the Uber or forty dollars for parking within a block of time. It's terrible. I'm so, bussing in from like thirty yeah, minutes. Yeah, you can bus. So I. That's great. Good. Or if you take a light rail. <laughs> yep. Great. Yeah. Um, but trying to park near here is a disaster. Yeah, I live in San Diego, and I. I know that pain yeah. well. San Diego's almost Some, as bad. Someday they'll have light rail to Redmond. I think it's in like mm-hmm. scheduled for like 2032 or something. Yeah. But for the moment, I have to drive across the bridge and then find somewhere to park. And then, fortunately, there's plenty of plenty of Uber or Lyft drivers around here. So, so going back to your book. Yep. Uh, Ship of Spoken Steel. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it just came out a few months ago. How yeah. how has the release been? How how does it compare to your previous series? Does it it's been, seem markedly different? Um, I don't know how different it is. It's been a lot of fun. I feel like we've gotten gotten a good response. The reviews that I've seen, I don't read reviews, but yeah, but okay. um, like as a rule, I don't like go to Goodreads and look them up. But I see some. And probably for the best. Yeah, it'll for drive, most authors, it'll drive you crazy because you don't want to fight people. Yeah, but then no. if you read reviews, you're going to want to fight people. Mm-hmm. It's not um, so, but people seem really positive. I've I've heard from a lot of people who seem to really like it, um, and that's great. And you had it in some book boxes, right? Yes, uh, the Lit Joy Crate. Um, it yeah, was in their right. book box. I did a really fun thing on Instagram with them, which they were like, "Do you, you know, 
come on Instagram and I'm like I don't, I don't know how to do Instagram because I'm, I'm old now I'm like I'm like that Steve Buscemi gift where he's like hello fellow kids like that's how I feel but but it was fine. They walked me through it. It was great. That's good. That's good. Um, and they, they were great. It's a great and, box, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Um, I have to read the other book they sent, because they sent me one, and there's another book in there, but I haven't read oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, I have a lot of books to read. There's a pile. There's I got a bookshelf for them, and then there's a pile on top of the bookshelf, uh-huh, uh-huh. and now the pile has reached the ceiling, and so there's another pile on the couch. You need to get a TBR cart. Those yes. are what's in now. The TBR cart. I have, I need several carts. Yeah, <laughs> I have two. <laughs> um, it doesn't help that once you become an author, they start sending you books for free. For free, yes. Um, and, uh, um, although I do get to read some really good books that I people are... Uh, um... There's some stuff I'm really looking forward to to being out. Like uh, Max Platzone's Empress of Forever is fantastic, and uh, Captain Muir's Gideon of the Night. Gideon of the Night. Oh yes, I'm so amazing. excited for that book. Um, so excited. And Lucky the Raven Tower just came out, mm-hmm. and I read that. And, um, there's a bunch of really good stuff that's uh, in the works. Yeah, Tor.com especially is really they're they're killing it. Out it's right amazing. Now. Like I love talking with them. It's like. You know, they, they, they're doing these novellas, and there's just so many of them that are amazing. Sean McGuire ones are amazing, and oh, yeah. Martha Wells' Murderbot ones are amazing, and Mike Cole's um, uh, Armored Saint is great. Oh, and, yes, I keep seeing um, that everywhere. It's just, it's just you know, thing after thing. Very impressive. So, are you are you happy with Tor as your publisher? Yeah, now? it's great to have a chance to work with them. Um, yeah, I'm hope you know. Someday I'd love to write for. Um, I, my agent is like, you got to write a novella for Tor.com, and I'm like, yeah. when? I need time. I have so it's many a novella. Things. It should be easy, right? But I have things to do. Like um, uh, in uh, my adult series is coming out with Orbit, and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. kids series is with Tortine, and so between the two of them, I'm pretty busy. Someday though, I have a bunch of ideas. I have more ideas than I could ever possibly write in my lifetime. <laughs> I have a file on my desktop. It's like 30 pages long. 